0: Hello there, and welcome to the latest episode of Disrupt Podcast. I'm Tom Jackson.
1: And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Every fortnight, Disrupt Podcast wraps up all the big news from across the continent's startup ecosystems and brings you exclusive interviews with special guests.
0: This week, we tell the story of an African tech exit and get you the top advice on valuing your startup. But first, here's all the news from the last two weeks.
1: Unusual levels of M&A activity in the African tech space in the last fortnight, though the stories of those deals are very differing. pan african travel tech company Hotel Online, which provides e-commerce and digital marketing solutions to hotels across Africa, announced it acquired two startups in June, Kenyan Experiences platform Cloud9 and Zimbabwean hotel listing service Africa Bookings.
0: Good news indeed for Hotel Online, which in the space of two deals has secured itself an entire B2C arm. The news that tells the story of the African travel sector in the age of COVID. These are share swap deals, not cash buyouts, and came about after Cloud9 and Africa bookings saw their customer base and revenues wiped out by the pandemic. Never waste a good crisis, they say, and Hotel Online has taken its opportunities to expand here.
1: The third acquisition of the last fortnight is a real feel-good story, with East African fintech company Bionic acquired by the Johannesburg-based payments provider MFS Africa in a buyout that saw significant return on investment for founders and investors alike. We'll dig further into that later this episode.
0: Funding continues to roll in across the continent's tech space. The last fortnight alone saw rounds for South African fintech SmartWage, ProfitShare Partners and Frank, as well as Egyptian edtech startup OTO Courses and Zambian microfinance company Lupia.
1: Three Nigerian startups were funded, home errand service Eden Life, fintech startup Wallets Africa and group buying platform PricePally. Our Ugandan fintech startup Eversend wrapped up its crowdfunding campaign having secured just over a million dollars. Meanwhile, MEST named a host of national winners, as it builds up towards giving away equity investments worth $50,000 as part of its annual MEST Africa Challenge.
0: Biggest news, however, was undoubtedly the acquisition of Bionic, a digital payments management provider with a range of business services for SMEs, fintechs and social impact entities. Bionic got to work in Uganda seven years ago, but is now also active in Kenya and Tanzania and will now be offering its cutting-edge enterprise digital payment services as part of MFS Africa. Gabriella caught up with co-founder Luke Kiohere to hear all about it.
1: What details can you give us about the acquisition?
2: So we're not disclosing the, the actual details of the deal for, uh, for various reasons. I suffice to say that our investors are pretty happy. We got multiples returns back, and um, the folks in the investors' Side are pretty happy as well.
1: What sort of multiples returns? You can't give us any numbers.
2: <laughs> we got some investors. who got um, upwards of seven x, um, and you know the average was probably between between five and seven for our
1: investors. So just to step back a little bit, I think you guys launched in. 2013?
2: Uh, I'd like to say we pivoted in 2013. This version, this pivot of Yannick, has a 2013 birth date.
1: It took quite a few years for you to become profitable. You needed to hit around the million dollar revenue mark before you you were profitable. Um, that's a long and steep hill to climb. What were you spending money on to be needing to turn over a million dollars before you were profitable?
2: The majority of our spend was and still is personnel. Um, when we think about a million dollars revenue, we're thinking, well, the, the second the second big thing was infrastructure. So we sp- in order to build a platform that was world-class and that was able to handle the sort of transactions we expected and enable in order to provide the SLAs we expected to provide, we we had to build a a platform that was pretty solid. And so the biggest spend was people. We had people in each country because it was important to us that we were able to provide that level of service. You know, we used to have an internal discussion around, you know, what's the best, what's the best company you've called? You just pick up the phone, you talk to them, you like them. Um, and what was what's the worst one? We've had a lot more of the worst examples than best ones because in general people don't 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 have a great time with customer care. and um, usually you call customer care when you're frustrated already and you're not happy right And so the bar is pretty high for how you know the person on the other end is going to make you feel better. but we tried to make that our thing and, you know can we provide can we can we provide a customer care service that we're happy with now we didn't always, succeed, but we, we built relationships with customers that I think were very important. Um, we built trust with customers that I think were very important. And you know, part of the reason why it took a while before you start hitting the, the hockey stick is as a new service that deals with payments, customers are not immediately going to say, you know, great, I want, I want to use this thing. They're going to test the waters first because it's money, it's their money that you're, um, that you're handling. And so we spent quite a bit of time building out trust with customers, and it got to the point that those customers were talking to other customers. And in fact, you know, by 2016, the majority of our new leads were referrals from other customers. Um, so that's the uh, that's partially why we, we you know investing in that network, investing in in having people who could who could offer high quality support um, would be one of the mo- probably the majority of our money was spent and we spent money on security as well um, and and expansion the other big part about what we believe made us attractive was the fact that even if we were a domestic player we were we were in multiple markets so if if you were another SME, another nonprofit, or another fintech like us who was trying to go from market A to B, you know, anything you could do to reduce the uh, OPEX and CAPEX you had to spend was, was something you jump on. So if you're using a platform in country A that was also available in country B, we found that very interesting, and we had a lot of customers who would end up using us. In a second country because of that, or even end up making a decision because they could use us in multiple countries, and you know, (laughs) going from country A to country B is is not easy. And I think people ended we you know people we grossly underestimated the cost of doing that, and just getting it right in the second country and the third country is hard uh, because in the markets we're in, you've got you know just two countries means two. Tax regimes, two regulatory regimes, um, everything, two currencies perhaps, multiple languages. So everything you're doing is duplicated and some, And you've got to support this forever, you know, setting up a separate support team. Um, but the advantage of that though is that once we'd done it, we became one of the few that had done it, and that became on its own a you know, moat, so to speak, that that was a mode against competition, a value proposition. and also just helped us kind of live, live kind of multitudes of uh, steps ahead compared to if we hadn't gone to that second country, that third country, when we did. We also prioritized um, what I call first-tier connections. Uh, while we could have easily connected to third parties that were connected to those countries, just because the few times we did that, it didn't really work out on the support side. We made it a priority to, to have first-tier connections, which meant that we're going almost from the ground up in each country and trying to set up our own infrastructure. So uh, hopefully that explains a little bit about why. Yes, we had investments in, in these systems that meant we needed to, to, to reach a certain revenue mark before we were profitable, but it also meant that we were much more valuable as a platform.
1: And where did the spending money come from in that multiple year period?
2: Um, so we raised some money. Yeah, a lot of it came from revenue because we were, we, we, we haven't raised, we hadn't raised as much as other companies in the space. Um, and we, at early on said we're going to push for profitability because we knew, it, again, from my previous experience in the region. You know, cash is king, and having money in the bank is, is great. And also not needing to try and raise money in order to survive is a good thing. And we got pretty close at some points. So, you know, and we were raising money all the time. So let me not just, let me just, we were not not raising money, but we were not making it the goal to first raise money and then try to raise the next check without trying to also figure out if we can be profitable and if the unit economics makes sense. Um, and we got pretty close, just like a lot of startups will tell you. You know, there there are times when we were not really sure that we could make the next couple of months, check. So, you know, and um, there are times when when I had to take pay cuts, and some of my execs had to do that just so that we could we could push the the uh, the road the, the runway out a bit. Um, but we raised money I'd say a little under a million dollars in the course of our lifetime, which helped um, uh, provide provide runway when we needed it, and we also doubled down on revenue, so the majority of our funding was basically the the, the more mature markets funding entry into the newer markets.
1: How many investors did you have at that point?
2: Um, so the cut table at the max was... Um, I'd say no more than six um, outside of the, you know, the founders.
1: You raised less than a million dollars in total. Why would you say um, you chose to really minimize the amount of funding you took on?
2: Part of it was a choice. Part of it was just market conditions. From my previous experience with the first part of Bionic and the first company that I started and uh, exited, which was fully bootstrapped, it was bootstrapped because we couldn't really raise at the time. And you know, no one was, in the mid-2000s, as I said earlier, no one was putting money into a, a company that comes and says, hey, uh, we've got servers in the cloud. We want to sell software to people through the Internet. Uh, can you please write us a check? There's not a lot of money around for that sort of thing. Uh, and so we bootstrapped. And while we were able to be moderately successful, it wasn't easy. Right? And so I made the decision that that I wanted to explore other ways to raise and expand my network. Not so much that I wanted to move to the US to raise money and and in fact not all our investors are US investors. But I wanted to have that option. I wanted to expand my network because you know, there's a lot of a lot more interest in funding companies um, outside the U.S. of companies like ours outside outside Africa at the time. Now one of the things that I found which I, I believe is true is that most people will put money into things and people they're familiar with and so if it was hard to raise money as an African in Africa it was a lot harder, it was quite hard much harder to raise money as an African in the U.S. than it would be perhaps for american or someone like that and you know no fault to that's the system right that's that's how things are so we had again i had to build a lot of trust with a lot of people in order to raise money the other thing that i i did which complicated things was that i i set up my life here so i was a remote founder and you know and so if you add that to the fact that you're trying to raise money for a project that for the most part is on the other side, the opposite end of another continent, um, it became a little complicated to raise. The last thing that was, was interestingly, in fact surprisingly hard for us as we were raising, is that for us we very clearly saw how Bionic was a company that was was providing impact was increasing impact of our customers and so in fact we thought that it was going to be a no-brainer when we talked to social impact funds and uh, companies that were interested in in deepening impact because you know we provide a platform that's that makes it easy to see where money is going makes it transparent reduces fraud reduces the cost of paying people and therefore for any company we had statistics showing that we could reduce the cost of a non profit, for example, by 20 to 30 percent for sending funds over time, let alone reduce fraud, reduce risk of fraud. And it, we had even interesting anecdotes for companies that had thwarted theft by, um, you know, their their office got broken into and the the safe was empty because, you know, the month, the previous month, they had switched to the Annex platform and so they didn't need, really need to have cash around. We had all these things that were clear indicators of impact from our point of view. But when we spoke to uh, social input fans, we were not checking a box that that we found that most of them had, which was that they generally... Social input funds are generally also consumer-facing funds. They, they invest in business-to-consumer products for the most part. So being a B2B company... Made it reduce the uh, the world the the, the base the, the union of companies or invest of of, of socially fans that could put money into beyond even if they liked the story checked a bunch of boxes but when it came to you know how many consumers are you directly impacting we didn't really check that box and some of them were just wouldn't invest because of that and so for a number of reasons. Uh, Including the fact that it just became more and more competitive. And over time, it has become more and more competitive to raise money in general. Um, we didn't raise a ton of money for lack of, not for lack of trying, um, but we also didn't want to focus too much on that, which is why we said, you know, let's keep raising. Let's, do, let's and, you know, let's, we actually started fundraising last year. And that was going really well before the uh, com- in acquisition discussion started.
1: When you started Bionic, what was your end goal? Was the goal to be acquired?
2: I think there was a list of goals and, and it's hard to think back. I think one of them, initially it was, there's a problem that's interesting enough for me to spend my time on and I think I've got a critical solution for it. And that, that was the initial driver. And I thought that this solution would be cool because it solved the problem and, you know, I validated that there was there was this need for a problem. And the along, the along the way, pretty early, you start thinking about what does success look like for this? How, you know, how big can it get or what does it need to get to for me to be, to feel like I've sufficiently solved this problem? And, you know, exit in some form, Eventually, becomes part of the picture, but I think in fact initially it was just scale. I think that that I thought that if if this thing could be as big as X, whatever that is, then that'll be that'll be a win, you know. And um, I do think that in some form, you think there'll be a time when this when I'll have to move on from this, but it wasn't necessarily. The exit in the sense of it will be the way that this thing ends, you know, an exit happens and that's what I'm going to be striving for.
1: And just last but certainly not least, um, when you look at the negotiation period with MFS Africa, do you have any specific advice for other founders um, from that negotiation period or things to bear in mind?
2: Well, don't negotiate a contract during an epidemic. I think I was pretty impressed by the team we were able to get around us on our side as we started this negotiation. Um, so we, used a, we had a team of advisors, Icon, out of, out of the UK, and a great lady called Monica. So I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know. As a as a founder or, or as you know someone who's in this t- set of the table, or whatever you can do to get more information is helpful. The more information you have, is helpful. So we've law a lot from a using in the past. matter out of a, out of Boston, I believe, and um, that was them plus the advisors we had plus our own board were pretty helpful in negotiations. Um, it also helped that the people who were in were negotiating with it on the other side were people we knew and had known for a while. I, I think that uh, there's a time, perhaps a couple of years ago, when we, when, when we reached out and started talking to folks with the intent of potentially exploring acquisitions. And it's very different when it's that thing, when you're actually in the market, versus when you're talking about something that is, you know, starts as a commercial deal or it makes sense. A partnership of some sort that eventually turns into something else because you have some history there. Um, advice to folks: Chances are that you know acquisition targets another and other ender people, companies you know and have worked with. So uh, work with us to Maintain good relationships with your partners because I think that that's how you build out the the trust that brings people to the table. Um, yeah, and it, you know, it's it's a long process. I think our our discussion process was actually truncated. Um, ended up being about eight months. Um, so brace yourself, and just make sure that you keep the energy up.
0: A major landmark for the African tech startup space then, and everyone at Disrupt Africa offers their congratulations to the Bionic team, and indeed the MFS Africa team, on the deal. The sale price, of course, is undisclosed, but was one that apparently suited all parties. When it comes to negotiating acquisitions, and indeed funding rounds, valuations are crucial. But alighting on a valuation, and agreeing upon one with potential acquirers or investors, is fraught with hazards, especially in Africa, where there are relatively few comparables. Here's angel investor Tommy Davis to take us through the things you need to bear in mind when valuing your business.
1: Could you tell us how can an African startup go about coming up
3: with an initial valuation? The first thing is where that startup is in the world matters. That's sort of the primary base factor, uh, so to speak, that affects the valuation. Because if you're a startup in Lagos, Nigeria, um, with, let's say, 50 B2B customers, and you're 12 months old with a revenue of about $30,000, your value will be totally different to a startup with exactly those same parameters, let's say, in Cape Town, or in Nairobi, or in... Cairo. So that's sort of the first start point is which economy you are operating in. The first thing that we've got to remember is whatever that valuation is, it's what you call the present market value. It's only as good as anybody that's offering to buy at that particular price. So what you're coming up with, and I'll share a few met- methodologies with you there. We have some for pre-revenue and we have some for post-revenue that we do use. Um, your, your estimate is only as good as the offer it gets. So it's a two way thing. Valuations are dependent on the founders. They're dependent on the team. They're dependent on the stage of the startup. Are you an ideation? Do you have a minimum viable product? Are you looking for product market fit? Are you in growth? Do you have traction? Um, Which industry you're in? Is it one that's in current growth? Is it one that has future potential? Um, What's the competition like? What customers do you have today or could you get tomorrow? Um, The kind of intellectual property that you've probably created. Uh, do you have patents or is it proprietary technology? We're talking of um, what kind of traction and growth you have, what kind of sales and margins, what risks you're facing. And uh, the list goes on. It's endless what contributes um, to that valuation. But having said that, um, there are fundamental approaches. There, there are what we call the pre-revenue valuation methods for startups, and then there's the post-revenue valuation method for startups. Um, On the pre-revenue, you've got the Burkish method. We have the scorecard. uh, You've got the risk factor summation. And then you've, of course, got the venture capital method. For post-revenue, everybody loves the DCF. That's the discounted cash flow. Um, I personally like the comparable precedents, if you can find the information. But then I have a guide we can talk about. Uh, and finally, there's the First Chicago, which is obviously the most complex of the lot for the eggheads. I don't know anybody that actually makes First Chicago work. What risk factors
1: are you as an investor going to take account of when you're valuing an African startup? And are they the same as you would consider in other regions? Or are we taking a unique approach on the continent?
3: Let me, let me call it venture investing through African eyes, because that's how I see it. First of all, most African investors, uh, most of people like us, we prefer smaller rounds, okay? Uh, the reason being, it allows startups to test the market, bootstrap, to learn how to operate under cash scarcity, and it, it enables them to actually hire people like they're spending their own money. This approach not only minimizes dilution, but it also allows for trial and error and the establishment of a disciplined company culture. Um Yeah, I know the Americans uh, are going to say, you know, I I rake against that. But, you know, here here are the following reasons for what I've just said. It is rooted in hard-born experience of the African market. First, like I said earlier, we have high-friction economies in Africa. The capital, business, regulatory, all the kind of infrastructure that you have in the West is not readily available here. Our currencies are less stable. I mean, take take the example of Nigeria. Just yesterday, we just had another 4.5% devaluation of the currency. And the economies are more often exposed to shocks. So that's the first thing. The second is we also talk about Africa as a monolithic whole. Well, guess what? Africa is not one country. The markets are small. They're fragmented and diverse in needs and preferences. To scale fast, (laughs) you need to hire fast and that means you need to hire well. You and I know what the situation is with talent on the continent.
1: So tell me, how do you value a startup in a market where there are often no comparables?
3: It's, it's an exceedingly tough one. Uh, you then have to go uh, with the next best thing. So uh, let's say you have to value <coughs> uh, a startup in Namibia. And there are no numbers for Namibia. Well, what's the closest economy you've got on the continent to Namibia? Is that Botswana? Are there any numbers in Botswana? If there are none, well, is it South Africa? Okay, if it's South Africa, then we know that's a premium economy, comparatively speaking, so you've got to take a discount. So you still use the same techniques, but then you discount it back.
1: And how do you value in a market where there are only very few exits?
3: That is what we've been struggling with. And we continue to struggle with because uh, although people will say, oh, yes, there have been exits on the continent, there haven't been enough to establish patterns, if you understand what I mean. So we, we just use multiple methodologies. That's, that's how I tend to approach it. So I use scorecard, even though they are post-revenue, then I'll take the VC. Uh, and finally, I'll, look at, I'll take a bet with risk factor or one of the others. And whatever I come up with, then I start negotiating with the startup, knowing that I'm probably anywhere uh, plus or minus 100000 hundred thousand, two hundred thousand $200,000 off the mark. A lot of the founders we talk to
1: report that they need to offer an Africa discount, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why, why is that? And is it the right thing to do from their perspective? And how long do you think this data will, will last?
3: Just like I said earlier. OK, uh, there isn't any empirical way to arrive at the value for an African risk factor. In 2013, yeah, Boyaji set the fact, he, he set it at 25 percent. At that time, he was advising startups, oh, make sure you keep your valuation well under a million dollars. How long do you think it will last where
1: African founders feel like they
3: have to discount their own innovations? Well, three different things have to change. The first is what we've been talking about, exits. Why? Because exits will drive the second, which is an increase of local investors. And if you've got local local money competing with international cash, which isn't the case right now, it's like 80-20 or even 90-10, depending on who you talk to. When it gets to 50-50 or it's even 60-40, that whole discount concept is going to evaporate. How much equity do you give away? You never give equity away, that's that's the trick. Um, if you're going to give control okay to somebody, it's because they're bringing some value. so it's a question of what that value exchange is and that's where the valuation issue comes into into play. <clears throat> um, as an angel, I do I never expect as an angel to own more than two and a half percent of any company. Venture capitalists and others will go as high, but as as I've heard, I haven't seen 50%. But I'd say anything up to the 25 percentile is reasonable because it means one vote out of four. If you're going strictly by numbers in terms of board votes and you say 25% gets one board seat, then there are three board seats left. For you to for the founders to sort of do as they anything above that it starts to get a bit dicey
1: in other markets or other regions valuation models exist to value pre-revenue startups can African startups really raise funding without any revenues
3: yes and we do that all the time in fact I am as I speak to you just earlier today I sent the um, pitch deck for a pre-revenue startup to my syndicate for to look at for investment. Um, I've been working with them for a number of months to get them, like I said, investment ready. So, yes, we do do it. It's not the preferred. Preferred is post-revenue, showing month-on-month growth. But there are some ideas and some founders that you just said, nah, we've got to do this. This is just, you can't let this pass. So the answer is yes.
1: What's the thing you're
3: looking for? Uh, there, there, it's a triangle you're actually looking for. I, I call it a magic triangle. First, it's the right idea. Okay. The second, so it's the right idea of a product or service. The second is for the right market. And the third part of the triangle is being delivered by the right person.
1: With your investor hat on, when an African founder comes to you looking for funding, what valuation methods or calculations? Um, would impress you or help you the most if they put forward to get a conversation started
3: with you? Uh, I always, exp- if you don't know anything else, at least no scorecard. Okay. Uh, it's the angel's favorite worldwide. And why is that? Is because it does allow me the flexibility of my experience to judge certain things. That's that's the real reason. Um, But there are quite a number of methods out there. And you just need to familiarize yourself with one or two or three of them. Um, I advise all angels, never, ever, ever use one valuation method for a startup and think that's it. Minimum's three, okay? Ideal is five, but nobody ever gets five. I'm usually between two and three myself. Um, But for pre-revenue... You have the Burkus method, you have the scorecard method, you have the risk factor summation, you have venture capital. Some of us, including yours truly, actually use these methods even for post-revenue. But post-revenue, typically is DCF, which is the discounted cash flow and comparable precedent transactions. That is others that have gone before. Nobody really uses for Chicago. So um, if you consider, those are six different approaches you can use to arrive at a number for a startup.
1: To what extent would you say uh, arriving at a valuation is a genuine negotiation between
3: investor and startup? A thousand percent. It's a negotiated settlement because um, what, what is actually happening when, when you are talking about valuation is, if you can imagine, okay, um, if you can imagine, a graph, okay? One curve, okay, which is going upwards is sort of the entrepreneur supply curve. And that is based on what percentage of ownership they want to give away versus how much cash they need. On the other end, you've got the investor's demand curve, which is what percentage equity they want to own versus how much cash they want to pay. Can you see those two? Yep, yep, sure. Right, It's where the two of them cross. That's the agreed amount and the agreed equity. That's the valuation. And so who's in the power position? Uh, It depends. Um, I've seen seen founders who are sitting on like about 12 to 18 months runway. I know they're going to need money in month 24, start negotiating. They're in serious power positions. And I've seen you know, (laughs) where they've been at six months wrong way and they know they've got to close the deal, in which case the investor's in the power position. It all depends on the circumstances.
1: What's the secret to valuing African
3: startups? What is the secret to valuing African startups? Uh, It falls back to that magic triangle I talked about. Knowing or, or hoping you can guesstimate or, you know, sort of figure out what is a great need, desire, okay, in terms of a product or service so you can identify when you see it. The second is knowing those markets and the fact that they may be in growth or decline. Um, So for example, if you look at transportation in Nairobi, Kenya, it's fundamentally different to looking at transportation in Cape Town. Um, And it's different yet again to look at Lagos, but you may see synergies between Lagos and um and Nairobi so it's looking at those markets and of course the third and final which to me is always the most critical is who are the founders and what's their ability to execute because at the end of the day no matter how great the idea is like Derek Seaver sells us ideas are just a multiplier for execution it's all about the execution so it boils down to who are the founders
1: And to sign off then, what advice do you have for founders who are looking to fundraise?
3: Uh, Know yourself, know your product service offering, know your market, and most importantly, know your numbers.
4: Hello, my name is Emekan Bakalu, I'm the CEO of Shop. We connect shoppers with local retailers by building technology around existing behaviors, networks and platforms. Using our WhatsApp chatbot, shoppers can find products, services and stores near their location. The bot uses NLP to achieve a seamless conversational experience while highlighting key information that improves conversion rates. The chatbot has been used over a thousand times in 20 countries since our launch last month. We have also developed a SaaS product that enables retail con- companies anywhere in the world to launch a similar chatbot in less than a month. If you are a multi-outlet store or supermarket, e-commerce business, or digital yellow page, and you are interested in improving your customer experience via WhatsApp, please reach out to us via email at info at or visit our website at edashop.com.
1: That's it for the latest episode of Distract Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and please do tell your friends and colleagues to check it out on any podcasting platform.
0: We'll see you again next time. Bye.
1: Bye.